0: box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. If you're enjoying this podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. I do also want to encourage you to check out our t-shirt store, where we have t-shirts as well as pullover hoodies in four different styles. Available t-shirt.greatdetectives.net makes a great Christmas gift. Again, check it out over at tshirt.greatdetectives.net. But now it is time for the conclusion of this week's Yours Truly Johnny Dollar serial. The original air dates are June 27th, 28th, and 29th of 1956. And it's the Long Shot Matter, Episodes 3, 4, and 5. From Hollywood, it's time now for...
1: Johnny Dollar. Lieutenant Barry here. Oh, hi, Lieutenant. You're stepping on toes, Johnny boy. Who's now? Dr. Victor Palmquist. Here you had a chat with him. Just how do you chat with a clan? Whatever it was, he was very unhappy about it. He called you? Yeah, very snide, too. Said if we had any more questions, to leave him alone and call his lawyers, and to keep unauthorized people away from him. Meaning me? Meaning you. Well, what's he worried about? You've already got his wife's killer in jail, haven't you? Everybody buys it but you, Johnny. You said it before, I'm a hard sale. Meet me for lunch, I'll try to sell you. to National Underwriters Association, 1180 River Road, Hartford, Connecticut. Assignment, the long shot matter. Expense account continued. Mm -hmm. Item three, one dollar even. Taxi to the Barclay for lunch with Lieutenant Berry. But let me backtrack for a minute. Coming down in the hotel elevator, I kept thinking over what the lieutenant had said, and I disagreed completely. I wasn't a hard sale. It's just that I wasn't an early sale. There were too many angles to the death of Mrs. Palmquist. Too many things I didn't know yet. I got proof of that the minute I stepped outside the hotel. The white-cared sedan parked directly across the street contained a real interesting combination of people. Eric Palmquist, the doctor's son, and Steffi Lund, the doctor's nurse. The moment they saw me, they did what every amateur sleuth does. They drove away as fast as possible, thereby becoming just as conspicuous as a second nose. By the time I reached the Barclay, Lieutenant Berry had ordered for both of us you don't like it, order something else, but it's the best they got. Matter of fact, it looks pretty good. Now, as I was saying... Yeah, yeah. So, Palmquist, Nurse, and his kid are an item. You waiting for me to look impressed? You get up out of the wrong side this morning, Lieutenant. Look, I don't like the smell of this deal any more than you do, but what does it all add up to? You're sent out here to look into a possible killing. Which happens? Victim, Mrs. Palmquist. So, an ex-convict sits in a cell accused of the murder. The accuser and witness, the dead woman's husband. The con insists he's been framed, that the husband is a killer. But the husband is well alibied, bringing it down to the setup known as ex-con versus respected citizen. You know there's more to it than that. Don't give me lessons, Johnny. You think you've come up with one thing we don't already know about? I got checkouts going on the doctor, his nurse, his son, everybody within shooting distance of this thing. Don't get any ideas we're asleep down at the hall. All right, all right. Give me a little fill, huh? Who? Palmquist nurse, Steffi Lund. Nice kid, never been in trouble. At least we couldn't find any. What about the boy, Eric Palmquist? Typical rich doctor's son. Kind of wild, sensitive, gambles, but Papa can afford it. Also hits the booze too much for a kid that young. What about the doctor's alibi, Laura Considine? Yeah, No, I should have skipped that one. Your eyes look like they're whistling. Isn't that awful? At my age, too. <clears throat> All right, Johnny, she's clean. By the way, where does she live? There's a big house in Long Beach. Why? No doctors there. Still a free country. I know people whose doctors live in Patterson, New Jersey. Point. Oh, almost forgot. I got the lab report on that anonymous note that started this thing. Anything? Untraceable. No prints. Cheap paper that can be bought anywhere, and the letters were cut from a dozen different magazines. Didn't tell us a thing. What do you mean it didn't? What? It told us someone was going to try to collect on a policy. We knocked it around a little while longer, getting no place in particular. Then suddenly I was being paged for a telephone call. Barry's raised eyebrows were eloquent. They made me feel like one of those would-be movie stars who have themselves paged in the Brown Derby so that other would-be stars will know they're there. I had a funny notion about who might be calling, so I told the waiter I'd taken in the booth out front and left Lieutenant Barry by himself. Johnny Johnny Dollar.
2: Dollar, I'm so glad I found you. Oh? This is... This is Steffi Lund, Dr. Palmquist's nurse.
1: Well, the day's picking up.
2: I'm sorry. I hope I didn't interrupt your lunch. You see, I called your hotel and they told me where you'd gone. I'm sorry. Well, I don't
1: d- apologize, Steffi. A working girl who drives around in a beautiful white Cadillac doesn't have to, you know. I,
2: I'll explain about that.
1: Why should you owe me any explanation?
2: Please, Mr. Dollar. I've got to see you right away. It's terribly important.
1: Mr. Dollar. Where are you?
2: I'm at Dr. Palmquist's office. Can you come here now, right away?
1: Okay, I'll be right over.
2: And please, don't bring anyone along with you, will you?
1: However you want it, you're calling the shots. thank you.
2: And hurry, please.
1: Expense account item four, citation for speeding, $25. The carbon copy reads 63 miles per hour in a 35 zone. You ever try to talk an L.A. type cop out of a ticket? It's ridiculous. He's always a big, good-looking guy who listens seriously while you alibi, but never stops writing. Then he smiles, calls you sir, and hands you the ticket. I couldn't beef about it, though. Two reasons. One, I deserved it. And two, if I hadn't been stopped, I'd never have realized I was being tailed. Because the tail knew what he was doing. A heavy-set, thuggy-looking fellow in a black 51 sedan. He circled the block twice while I was getting the ticket was right back on me as I started out again. He was still there as I pulled up in front of Dr. Palmquist's office, but he was smart enough to ride on by without even looking at me. I waited to see if he'd come around the block again. He didn't. What is it? What? What
2: do you want?
1: Well, now, that's a switch. When you called me a few minutes ago, you no, said...
2: No, you're mistaken. I, I didn't well, call now, you. Oh,
1: wait just a I minute. I
2: didn't call you. Don't her
1: you Her words understand? were deliberate, emphatic, but her eyes were suddenly doing the real talking, signaling desperately into the room behind her, trying to tell me that she wasn't alone. But I wasn't the only one who caught the signal.
3: Get away from the door, Steffi. i mean in you. Did you hear me? I said come in. Eric, please...
1: Hello, Eric. What seems to be the trouble around here? That's far enough. Oh, now, come on. Why don't you put that thing down? Your family's had enough misery with 38s.
3: Darling, Do what he says. Why did you call him, Steffi? Why? Because
2: somebody's got to help you because of what you're going through and what it's doing to you. Eric, I can't stand any more of it. You're half out of your mind with fear now. Listen to him, Eric. Maybe he can help. You think he can
3: help? You think
2: anybody can?
1: One thing's sure. That gun's not going to help you any... Come on now, kid. Put it down.
3: No. No, because nobody tells me what to do. Not when I've got a gun. They're afraid to. (laughs) That's right. They're afraid to. You're both afraid, aren't you? (laughs) It's nice. It's nice for somebody else to be afraid. I like that. I I really like that.
1: (laughs) He wasn't even looking at us anymore. Just somewhere off into space. Somehow, Steffi sensed that I was waiting for a chance to grab his gun and motion for me not to. And suddenly, I remembered where I'd seen that lost, empty look before. Mrs. Palmquist, Eric's mother. She'd had her <laughs> share of that look the day she died.
2: <laughs> Mr. Dollar, help me with him, please.
1: I picked him up, put him on the couch... He had that terrible whiteness that a deep faint brings, and Steffi didn't waste any time. She loosened his collar, shoved his head forward. In a few minutes, he shuddered once, came to, took a deep breath. We made him comfortable on the couch, but you could see that it had been a rough trip for him. He was conscious, but he didn't have the strength to open his eyes. Steffi just stared at him.
2: He'll be all right now.
1: What's wrong with him, Steffi? Why that that thing that just happened?
2: You want the technical name? Circulatory liability. sound impressive.
1: Talk layman, huh?
2: A form of extreme hypertension, nerves. Enough to make him faint like that from anger, from fear. It's a lovely thing for a man to go through, isn't it?
1: Well, that that calls for a different kind of medicine, doesn't
2: it? Analysis with a psychiatrist. He's in it now. Only with Eric, it's going to take a long time. Maybe a very long time. But
1: a kid like that, how? Why?
2: Fear. Overpowering, petrifying fear. Of what? His father.
1: Of Dr. Palmquist?
2: Yes. The nice Dr. Palmquist. The gentle, quiet healer. My employer. My father-in-law.
1: You and Eric are married?
2: Tijuana six weeks ago. Eric is twenty-five years old, Mr. Dollar, and he's so afraid of his father we're still keeping the marriage a secret.
1: Why, Steffi? Why is he so afraid of Palmquist?
2: His analyst hasn't been able to get through to that. You expect me to? Well, somebody better. Why did you say that?
1: Because he waved that gun around very convincingly for a scared kid.
2: He never would have fired. Don't you understand? He's so frightened he couldn't have made himself do it.
1: I hope you're right. I didn't think it was quite the time to mention one small fact. That if Eric Palmquist was incapable of pulling a trigger, it might turn out to be a very good thing for him. As the sole beneficiary of his mother's will, he would soon have $100,000 in a nice, tidy lump. And if he really was afraid of his father, a piece of money like that could take him a long, long way from the parental fold. In fact, no matter which way you turned, you couldn't get away from the logic that Eric Palmquist might be regarded by some parties as a first-class suspect in the death of his mother. Steffi was still pretty much upset when I finally left her, and I must admit that my own mind wasn't exactly at ease. Hoping that the fresh air would help to clear my thoughts, I took my time driving back, and it must have been nearly an hour later when I pulled into the subterranean garage of my hotel. I guess I was thinking too hard about what had just happened. In any case, I wasn't quick enough. Just as I passed one of the garage's big concrete pillars, a figure stepped out from behind it, brought the business end of a colt banging down on my head. The ground climbed up and got me. But not before I had a look at him. My heavy set thuggy-looking friend who tailed me earlier in the day. He could talk too. You're in the wrong town, Punk. Take the hint. I took the hint. I passed out. Mr. Dollar. Oh, this is Dr. Van Klauser
4: returning
3: your call, Mr. Dollar. Oh, yes, Doctor. Uh, may I ask who recommended me?
1: I'm worried about a good psychiatrist, and it came up you.
3: Yes. Uh, well, uh, the first step is usually an office appointment for a preliminary check.
1: That's what I had in mind. Today?
3: Uh, my
4: schedule is quite full. Would tomorrow be suitable?
1: Today would be better.
4: Oh, I see. But there should be ample
1: time. There but... should be ample time, but there isn't. In fact, I'm running out of it fast.
3: Very
1: well. Eleven o'clock. Dust off your couch. From Special Investigator Johnny Dollar, location Los Angeles, California, to National Underwriters Association, one one eight zero River Road, Hartford, Connecticut. Assignment: the Longshot Matter. Johnny Dollar, hypochondriac, complete with assorted medical advisors. I needed one of them before I even got down to the lobby of my hotel. It was a house medic, that's item five, five dollars, who'd patched me up yesterday after a thug had worked me over in the hotel garage. Now came checkup time, and the doctor was a fusser, and he disapproved of me.
3: Hold still now, hold still. Yeah, yeah, but that's my head you're digging into. I wouldn't have to if somebody else hadn't split it open. There, hey. Looks a little better.
1: Don't sound so enthusiastic. Walking into a wall. It's (laughs) the best I could think of at the moment. Likely
3: story. Hold still now. I want to redress that wound on the other side. Hold still. Temper, temper. Funny,
1: he was working on the outside of my head, but it was the inside that ached most. There were reasons, lots of them. Like the murder of a sick old woman the same day I'd arrived. And the anonymous note that had warned of it like the victim's husband and an ex-convict accusing each other of committing the crime. It was a rough one, real rough, because the picture kept changing from minute to minute, and my company was on the hook for $100,000. At 11 o'clock, I sat across the desk from Dr. Hans van Klauser, a psychiatrist in his Beverly Hills office. He was small, spectacled, and charmingly Viennese. More important, he was the analyst who was treating Eric Palmquist, the murdered woman's son.
3: Uh, now, Mr. Dollar. Afraid I owe you an apology, doctor. I deceived you a little bit. I'm not exactly here as a patient. Oh, everyone finds it difficult to begin, Mr. Dollar. You uh, suppose we hear some of the medical history first? Yes? I tell you, we're off on the wrong foot, doctor, and it's my fault. Here, take a look at these, my credentials. I, I see that you're hardly here as a patient. About a patient, let's say. My dear Mr. Dollar, I think you know very well that I can reveal nothing which is told to me in this room. I know that. Then the purpose of this visit? I just want answers from a competent authority about a certain illness.
1: I won't bring personalities into it. It's important, doctor.
3: And the particular illness? Something called circulatory lability. Uh, You know that it's a form of extremely provoked hypertension? Yeah, that much I do. Hypertension is the result of anxieties. The anxieties may be real or fancied But the hypertension is very genuine indeed And very dangerous Dangerous to the extent that a man could turn to violence Maybe kill If sufficiently aroused Yes, it has happened I see Thank you Thank you very much
1: <laughs> Item 7, 10 cents, Recklessly squandered on a phone call to my hotel To check for messages There was one Lieutenant Burry of the L.A. Police Department would like to see me at my convenience. Would I? I would. You get practically nowhere ignoring police lieutenants. He stared at the bandage on my head and my assorted cuts and bruises, and his opening line was quite inspired. Oh, what happened to you? Somebody was pretty fast with a gun barrel last night. Where did it happen? Garage, under my hotel. It seems he didn't like my being in town. You got a look at him? Enough. Want to go through the mug book? Uh, No, I'll catch up with him someday. Besides, whoever was paying him is the interesting one. Have it your own way. Well, now, you didn't call me all the way down here for laughs, Lieutenant. Anything special on your mind? Lonnie Miller, the guy we got sitting in cell number 8A, the prowler who shot Mrs. Palmquist. So, Dr. Palmquist insists. He isn't the only one, Johnny, not anymore. What? Yeah. We finally traced the murder weapon. It was bought at a pawn shop in Burbank. The pawnbroker positively identified a mugshot of the buyer, Lonnie Miller. Police identification evidence is a pretty tough thing to ignore. But I was still what the lieutenant called a hard sale. It wasn't stubbornness, simply the fact that I'm very large for motivation. It can be as wild, as woolly as they come, but it's got to be there somewhere. And somehow, with so many good ones around, the worn, faded man in cell 8A didn't raid in that company. I asked the lieutenant for a couple of minutes with Lonnie Miller. He shook his head as though he felt sorry for me, but okayed the visit anyway.
3: You're angry about something, Mr. Dollar. I can tell it's in your face.
1: Yeah. About a story you told me the other day. About Dr. Palmquist giving you a lift, keeping you around town, then using you as a patsy so he could kill his wife. You want to change any of it? You're asking if I lied, mister?
3: Is that it? That's it. figured to be like this sooner or later.
1: Goodbye, mister. Come on, Miller. Talk to me. Lie?
3: think I'd lie to the only man who even looked like he believed me? You still have an answer. Mr. Mr., don't you think I know I haven't got a chance? That I'm dead. I don't even care anymore. But I didn't lie. Not one word. A
1: Burbank pawnbroker says you did. Says you bought the murder gun from him.
3: I've never even been in Burbank, I swear to you. How could I have bought the gun?
1: He identified a picture of you. Says you showed your driver's license as identification.
3: Where is your license, Miller? In my wallet, downstairs. They took everything when they booked me. Mr. Dollar? Tell it to me
1: all over again, Miller. From the minute Dr. Palmquist gave you the lift, step by step, every single detail, tell it to me. He began slowly, haltingly. The words just kind of fell out of his mouth in a tired, hopeless fashion. It was the same story he told so many times now... I had reason for making him go through it. Some small, hazy idea that was tugging at the back of my brain. Jagged, undeveloped, but an idea. When I left the cell, I had Miller's permission to look in his wallet. The police custodian showed it to me five minutes after that. The license wasn't there. Expense account item 8, 10 cents. An L.A. newspaper, three days old. One which played up the Palmquist killing big... ...contained pictures of both Dr. Palmquist's grieving husband... ...and Lonnie Miller's suspected killer. Purpose? To be used in backtracking. The drive down to Long Beach could have been pleasant. Sun, ocean, a relaxing type day, but not for me. Not with what was going on inside my head. Even the soft breeze coming in off the Pacific... ...couldn't sweep the pieces together for me. Sure, for a few seconds everything would make sense... Then, a moment later, some small fact would make the whole theory collapse. I knew one thing, though. If this whole deal was a frame, it was a great one, a work of art, something to be admired. Provided your name was neither Lonnie Miller or national underwriters. About six miles side of Long Beach, I found what I was looking for, the little tacos joint where Miller claimed he and Dr. Palmquist had stopped for coffee.
4: You, you like some tacos? Sure. Uh, sit down. It won't be a minute. On her run? <laughs> You're looking at him, amigo. Irving Gonzalez, owner. Irving? Sure. I, I had it changed. Nobody could pronounce Plutarco Gonzalez.
1: <laughs> uh, see your point.
4: <laughs> he doesn't pay to make problems for your customers in business. <laughs>
1: yeah.
4: Uh, when are you going to work up to asking the questions, amigo? Well, <laughs> I can make tacos blindfolded, and I can tell a cop the same
1: way. Well, you're not too far wrong. Want to take a look at this newspaper? Either of these men ever been in here? And Dr. Victor
4: Palmquist and Lonnie Miller. Oh, I read about that killing. Very interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, what about it, Irving?
4: What about what?
1: These men, have they ever been in here, alone, together, any time? Yes, I mean... Look
4: kind of familiar, but maybe it's only because I see him in the papers, you know. That's the best you can do. Well, well, look, amigo, you stand behind a counter all day and everybody looks like everybody else. You wouldn't want me to make a guess, and that's all I'd be doing, guessing. No, I wouldn't want that. (laughs) Here, nice and hot. Eat your tacos, amigo. Thanks anyway. I'll skip them this time.
1: Here.
4: You know something? I don't blame you. Look at this. Pills. Pills? Pills. I eat them by the dozen. You know why, amigo? Tacos.
1: There's this about the racket. You try, you strike out, you can't waste time thinking about it. You get on to the next step. The step, Laura Considine, Dr. Palmquist's lovely alibi the night of his wife's death. Her house was only a few miles out of Long Beach. It seemed logical to head for it. I reached it about 20 minutes later, a large, old-fashioned and seemingly deserted house in a promontory that jutted out into the Pacific. Strikeout number two, the hostile iron fence that circled it made its point. Keep out, so I did. Trespassing applies to everyone. From where I stood, I couldn't identify the car that suddenly roared away from the back of the house, but one thing was obvious, the driver was in a hurry, and I was getting nowhere. I decided to head back to town. It happened five minutes later as I rounded a curve on my way back to the Pacific Coast Highway. (laughs) Choice, the Pacific on one side, granite cliffs on the other. I picked the cliffs. Funny what your mind does at moments like that. I remember looking at the mashed inside of the car and wondering which company carried the insurance policy. Then I thought of how good a marksman a man must be to pick off a tire from any of those cliffs. And then I remembered still another thing. Hadn't I been told about someone who was a great shot, who made it a rule to hunt two months out of the year, no matter how busy he was? Sure. A highly respected citizen named Dr. Victor Palmquist. Honey, Dollar. This is Laura Considine, Mr. Dollar. You don't know me, but... Oh, but I do, Mrs. Considine. You're the best friend a doctor ever had. Dr. Palmquist, that is. Mr. Dollar, He paid you a professional call the night his wife was murdered. That was lucky. Alibis don't grow on trees. Just
3: a minute, Mr. Dollar. Look, lady, I've
1: been slugged, shot at. Matter of fact, someone tried to pick me off with a rifle a couple of hours ago, right near your house. Maybe Dr. Palmquist will alibi you this time. Return the courtesy. Will
3: you please
2: listen? I've got to see you. I've got to talk to you.
1: All right, when? An hour. The bar at your hotel. The martinis will be waiting. From Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to National Underwriters Association, 1180 River Road, Hartford, Connecticut. Assignment the long shot matter. Expense account concluded. There were still a lot of questions, like where I was getting, trying to find out who really had killed Mrs. Palmquist. Like, was it all a smoothly planned frame on the part of her doctor husband? Or had it been a prowler killing by another man now in jail? Or had the dead woman's son, Eric, a complex we didn't know about? Mrs. Considine was five minutes late, but I hope she could answer some of them. Mr. Dollar? Oh, come now, Mrs. Considine, that reading. It implied we haven't met before, and you know that we have.
2: Well, I don't remember... The day
1: you visited Dr. Palmquist in the hospital and pretended you had the wrong room. Sit down.
2: Well, there was a reason for that.
1: Sure, there's one for everything.
2: Is there? You think Victor Palmquist had something to do with his wife's death. Well, you're wrong. Completely wrong.
1: Correction. You don't know what I'm thinking, and being wrong is anybody's privilege. You
2: don't know about Victor, Mr. Dollar. What his life's been like, what he had to put up with.
1: Why don't you tell me, Mrs. Considine?
2: That wife of his. A millstone around his neck. A woman in love with a bottle. Go on. And that son of his, that Eric. Insane. Completely insane. He hates his father. He always has. He gains a fortune by that woman's death. But do you suspect him? No, of course not. You badger a man like Victor Palmquist. Now, does that make sense?
1: You're building a big thing on the fact that a lot of people hate Victor Palmquist. But you're overlooking something.
3: Mr. Dollar. Where
1: there's that much hate, there's always a good reason. I went to the hotel garage, rented a car, and pointed it toward Burbank. There was a man in a pawn shop there I wanted to see. The man who had identified Lonnie Miller as the buyer of the gun that had killed Mrs. Victor Palmquist. He turned out to be a mild, friendly little guy with thick glasses and a desire to please. He barely glanced at my identification, pushed it back over the counter to me, and smiled.
3: What do you want to know?
1: Everything you can remember about the man who bought the gun, Mr. Lerner.
3: What's to remember? A kind of skinny, gray-haired fella come in. said he wanted to buy a gun. And I showed him one. He bought
1: He showed you a driver's license for identification, didn't
3: he? I copied the information right here in the book. Yeah, uh, yeah, right here. Lonnie Miller, 173, Fuller, San Diego. Height, 6 feet. Weight, 152. Color, white. Right here, here, look yourself.
1: Yeah. Look at this paper, Mr. Lerner. One of these, the fella?
3: Mm, Hmm, let me see.
1: Lerner adjusted his glasses and leaned forward to peer at the newspaper I'd put on the counter. It was the way I was leaning on the paper that really started the whole thing. The two pictures were side by side. Dr. Palmquist in a business suit and Lonnie Miller in a cap, leather jacket and work pants. My arm was covering everything but the faces. Lerner moved my arm before pointing out Miller as the buyer of the gun. Then he nodded emphatically.
3: Sure, that's the fellow who bought the gun, that Miller.
1: You had to move my arm before you'd say so, Mr. Lerner.
3: You we were covering up half the picture. Well, am I a mind reader? No, but I think
1: you might have made the most normal mistake in the world.
3: Wait, wait, you were trying to tell me this Miller didn't come in here and buy a gun from me? That's about it. So how come a fellow who wasn't here gave me a driver's license and said he was? That's a good question, Mr. Lerner.
1: There were two people I wanted to see now real bad. Lieutenant Barry at Homicide and Lonnie Miller, cell 8A City Jail. I streaked down to headquarters and guess what? The lieutenant was out on police business. Should be back in a while. I knew Lonnie Miller wasn't out, so I settled for him. There were only two or three questions I wanted to ask him, but they were important. I spent about 15 minutes in the cell with Miller, got my answers, and they made sense now. Then I spent an hour waiting for the lieutenant. He finally showed This time, he was the hard sail, even after I discussed what I'd figured out at the pawn shop. Johnny, Johnny, I'm tired. Oh, sure, me too. Now, look, Lieutenant, you know what I'm pushing is possible. Dr. Palmquist and Lonnie Miller are approximately the same size age coloring. Even the bone structure is fairly similar. But they don't look alike. They don't have to, because it's the impression that counted here. Johnny! That's exactly what Palmquist was counting on. Now, look, Lieutenant, you've been around... You know what people go by when they're asked to identify someone, an all-over impression. So? And you know a big factor is clothes, particularly the type of clothes. All right, all right. What are you going for? This. If Dr. Palmquist walked into that pawn shop wearing a cap, leather jacket, and work pants, and then, six days later, you show the pawnbroker a picture of Lonnie Miller, dressed in the same kind of clothes, you know whom he'll identify every time especially when he'd already seen a driver's license made out to Lonnie Miller. A thousand ways to make a living. What did I pick Lieutenant. Look, suppose I buy that. Where are you? Dr. Palmquist, for some reason or other, wants his wife dead. He needs a patsy, so he picks up Lonnie Miller, a hitchhiker on the Pacific Coast Highway. If you say so. At a coffee stop, the doctor remembers something he left in the car. He goes out for a minute, sticks a match or a toothpick in a tire valve, guaranteeing a flat a few miles further on... So when they stop, it's the doctor who looks at the flat, gets rid of the toothpick. Grateful for the lift, Miller changes the tire. You ever change a tire on a hot summer night? Well, sure. You took off your jacket, didn't you? How else? That's what Doc was counting on. He had a couple of minutes alone with Miller's jacket and lifted his driver's license. Then he keeps Miller in town on the promise of a job. He buys the gun at the Burbank pawn shop wearing work clothes and giving Miller's license as identification. Monday night, he killed his wife. Called Miller to the house with a phony story about a job. Struck him from behind and staged the scene the police found. Smooth, huh? Johnny, can you see me going to the D.A. with all that theory and no proof? Palmquist had laughed me out of town. Barry, look! Knock it off! You're no kid. You know I'm right. Ah. Well, don't go away mad. Sure, I know he was right. That's what was driving me crazy. Proof. One little piece of it, but where... Oh, Palmquist had used his head all right. But the smartest ones alive always leave one little hole somewhere along the line. But three hours later in my hotel room, I hadn't found it. Steffi, what are you doing here?
2: Johnny. Eric's been drinking all day. Brooding, working himself into a rage, saying terrible things about Mrs. Considine and his father, and about his father being a murderer. I don't know what he'll do. Help me, Johnny, please. He give you
1: any idea of where he was headed?
2: He, he mentioned going home to get a gun and then going to Mrs. Considine's house.
1: Johnny, I'm afraid. All right, come on. The drive to the Palmquist house on the Palisades was a long one, but educational. Because Steffi had nothing to hide now. She was just a kid worried to death about her husband. And her bitterness toward Dr. Palmquist came rolling out.
2: He's an easy man to hate, my father-in-law. All charm on the outside. Petty little dictator inside. man who's trying to prove something, who can't abide weakness. Tries to make everyone over into his own image. A horrible man.
1: Tell me about Eric's brother.
2: Paul? He was the favorite. The doctor's pride and joy. They hunted together all the time. Only one day, Paul had a cold. Tried to get out of a hunting trip. This offended the doctor's weakness fetish made the boy feel like a coward, so Paul went hunting and died of pneumonia. Mrs. Palmquist never got over it, as you saw before she was killed. Nice, Johnny. You like the family I married into?
1: The house was dark when we got there. We hurried to Eric's bedroom, and Steffi leaned against the door, weak with relief. Eric lay sprawled on the bed, snoring fine alcoholic noises. The rifle he still clutched made very clear what he'd been thinking about before the liquor had taken over. We were just getting him comfortable when we heard it. A car pulling into the garage. Palmquist. I got Steffi down the back stairs and out of the house as soon as I was sure he was inside. And then I turned back. Because suddenly I was tired of a killer walking around free while everyone else stepped softly. And the anger was good. Because it suddenly drove into my mind the one thing Palmquist might have overlooked. I let myself into the garage for a small window to the doctor's big car. You ever try to force open a car trunk with a claw hammer? Don't. A, it's rough, and B, it takes your eyes off the door leading to the kitchen.
3: Why don't you ask me for the key, Dollar?
1: A gun, doctor? No instrument of healing? Oh, that's nice. And it tells me something about the trunk. That there's a spare tire in there that's flat, but doesn't have a puncture. A service station might remember a thing like that, huh, Doctor?
3: Right, right, Mr. Dollar. Goodbye.
1: He couldn't pick me off because of the car. But the car was working against me, too. You did better with a rifle yesterday, Doctor.
3: I'll manage, Mr. Dollar.
1: A man my age through windows, no less. He had it? Nah, nah, he'll look good in court. Small question, Lieutenant. Not that I'm ungrateful. Ask. Aren't you a long way from home? I didn't like the look in your eye when you stomped out. You know something, Johnny? You're easier to tail than a trolley car. Expense account item 12, $71. L.A. hotel bill. Item 13, $174.90. Return airfare to Hartford. Expense account total, $490.80. Details? Eric Palmquist admitted sending us the original warning note out of fear of his father. He never knew till the death of his mother that he himself was the beneficiary. Remarks? About Hollywood. Let's call it the Easterner's Revenge. Quote, It's a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. Unquote. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
3: Now here's our star to tell you about next week's intriguing story.
1: Next week, three million dollars worth of a worthless gold mine, and there's blood on the desert sand. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed in Hollywood, written by Tony Barrett. It is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in this week's cast were Virginia Gregg, Victor Perrin, Lillian Biaf, Russell Thorson, James McCallion, Edgar Barrier, Don Diamond, and Herb Butterfield. Musical supervision by Amerigo Marino and Carl Fortina. Be sure to join us on Monday night, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, Roy Rowan speaking.
0: Welcome back. Despite a couple of my nitpicks in the previous two parts, this is a solid story and perhaps one of the best of the 1956 serials. It does a really good job exploring challenges and potential biases in witness identification of criminals. Sometimes it can be imagined that people are paying rapt attention to what's going on around them. So eyewitnesses are extremely reliable and can make no errors. This story plays with that and suggests a few ways eyewitness testimony can go wrong and be manipulated. This story was written by Tony Barrett. The name is familiar to old-time radio fans, of course. The only regular recurring role I'm aware of him having is as the reliable cabbie Mark Donovan on the syndicated series The Adventures of Frank Race. However, we've heard him all over the golden age of radio in so many mystery and dramatic programs, frequently playing Tufts or doing Hispanic or Spanish dialect roles on a series like Tales of the Texas Rangers and Dangerous Assignment. Like many in the golden age of radio, Barrett had ambitions beyond acting. The first writing credit for Barrett was a 1951 Christmas episode of Tales of the Texas Rangers. And I don't think I talked a whole lot about that on that episode. He also wrote a couple episodes of Escape. In 1955, he made his TV writing career debut with an episode of Public Defender and was definitely on the rise in 1956. He would write for more than 50 TV shows and films. He wrote lots of drama, mostly in the crime and Western genres, although he did write the screenplay for a Sonny and Cher smooth comedy film, Good Times. His most important work would be on a couple of series. First of all, the classic uh, Private Eye series, Peter Gunn, where he has a writing credit for the majority of episodes and wrote most of Season 2 and Season 3. He was also the principal writer and developed the series The Mod Squad in the late 60s and early 70s. I think this serial reflects a slightly different style that works really well with Bailey's interpretation of Johnny Dollar, but also with maybe a few modifications could easily work in a 1960s private eye show. Also, it has to be said the ever versatile Herb Butterfield is always an asset to have in the cast. He not only played Dr. Palmquist, but was also the pawnbroker. He's such an invaluable guy to have around, particularly late in the golden age of radio when you needed to keep budgets tight. And, of course, he always did a great job, no matter how many characters he had to play. And personally, one thing that I've enjoyed about playing Dangerous Assignment, and to an extent Dragnet, is seeing if I can catch where Herb Butterfield is playing a second character. I don't mention it because it happens so frequently that it seems silly to harp on it. But nevertheless, we do find some ways to amuse ourselves in listening to old-time radio. Well, listener comments and feedback now. And over on YouTube, a listener uh, highlighted a piece of dialogue in the first uh, two parts of the indestructible mock matter. All the incidentals I could think of. Ha 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 ha. That is a a funny line, and of course it reminds me because uh, there's another listener who's been going through like some of the Bailey half hours, and he's posted like two or three different comments suggesting that the home office needs to crack down on that expense account. And then uh, we have an email from Dave who writes... Harry and Peter Bransom in the indestructible mock matter are the comedic predecessors of twin antiques appraisers, Leigh and Leslie Kino on Antiques Roadshow. Good to know. Thanks for the comment. And then we go to our comments on our survey from survey.greatdetectives.net. Robert writes, love the show. Love Johnny Dollar. Well, thank you so much. And now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. And I want to go ahead and thank James. James has been one of our Patreon supporters since July 2022. Currently supporting the podcast at the Detective Sergeant level of $7.14 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, James. And that will do it for today. If you are enjoying the podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. Be sure to rate and review the podcast wherever you download it from. We will be back on Tuesday with the start of another Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar serial. But join us back here tomorrow for Dragnet, where...
2: He got me into this and now he's trying to lie his way out, blaming me.
0: How long have you been doing this, burglarizing cars?
2: Me? Oh, only about two weeks. It was supposed to be fun, something to do at night. The rest of them have been at it a couple of months.
3: Who's the head of the gang?
2: I told you, it's him, Stanley, and Fred Milford and Jansen, all three. I only started going out with him two weeks ago, maybe less.
3: All right, Joanne. Tell it to the stenographer the same way.
2: Stenographer will be in in a minute, Jim.
3: Okay, Marge, thanks. Stay with her. All right, Joe. Just about a closed case, Ben. girl gave us a full confession. She didn't. Oh, you're not tricking me again. She didn't.
1: She told us you're one of the leaders of the gang, Stanley. Said you got her into all this. The other two are George Jansen and Fred Milford. About a dozen kids in the gang, all of them about your age.
0: Isn't that right?
3: She's lying, can't you tell? She's lying. She got
0: me into the gang. I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net, Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives, and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash detectives from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.